You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets, episode 29. Today, we have a return of all four of my segments, bits and pieces, where I just run down kind of, you know, news in the space. I try not to rehash stuff uh, that you can find elsewhere, except when it is needed. There, some, some stories are just so big that it needs to be talked about. Okay, Altcoinville is where I talk about the wacky world of altcoins. We've seen the beginning of a mass extinction. We had the Cambrian explosion, you know, in 2011, 12, 13, and now we're seeing a mass extinction. Even since I recorded this bit for Ethereum, they uh, have crashed even further, all the way down into the $5 range. And that could continue. I'm I'm guessing that that big drop is going to stick for a while, but, uh, you know, probably no more than a month. It will continue down. It's, there's no, there's nothing to Ethereum. I talk about some other altcoins. Um, my featured article is going to be talking about the Andreas, newest Andreas video from Coin Scrum. I thought it was excellent, and I have some stuff to say about that. And Flashpoint. I end up with Flashpoint talking about the Italian referendum and how that ties into the ECB meeting coming up this week and the Fed meeting coming up next week. So that's pretty interesting. All right, before we get into that, though, let's talk about a market update. So the Bitcoin price right now is sitting at 753 on Bitstamp, and that is uh, pretty good. I mean, we tested the June highs in the dollar, missed it by 78 cents on Bitstamp, and um, I think we'll we'll make another run at it here in the next day or two. Uh, maybe well, maybe out to Friday. But uh, I think it's pretty strong. The price is showing a lot of support at 750. So it could just keep going up. Now the, the CNY price has already broken the June highs. So we're waiting on the dollar market. That resistance on the dollar side has affected the, the price more than the resistance on the CNY side, which I don't know exactly how to break that down. Uh, but it is pretty interesting to, to notice. Okay. What other numbers we have? Well, the weekly volume on local bitcoins is continuing to hit all-time highs it's uh this last week it was 18.5 million dollars worth of bitcoin um traded on the bitcoin network we again are still hitting all-time highs almost every week uh this last 24 hour volume was um 111 million dollars worth of bitcoin transacted on the bitcoin network that's in a 24 hour period the difficulty uh, is estimated to go up uh, 5.8%. That's still over a week away, but we did see a big 10% jump followed by a 2% or 3%. Was it 2% jump last time? And now it's, it's on target for another 5% jump. That just tells me that there's a, still a lot of people that want to invest money into this system. It is not on the decline. It, to the contrary, it is still growing very quickly. All right, SegWit drama. Uh, the network is growing despite the SegWit drama. It is uh, at 24% right now, between 24 and 25%. It has kind of uh, plateaued. Hopefully it, it continues up as uh, more of these pools start integrating um, 
13.1 into their systems. Uh, there have been some developments with the banning of um, Gregory Maxwell, Bitcoin Core developer on Reddit. He was supposedly reported by some people on RPTC. Of course, they are the ones that are claiming they don't want censorship, and then they report Gregory Maxwell to the authorities. That is more censorship. That is more like censorship. Of course, all of this is not censorship. Um, nobody is in fear of their life. Nobody is in fear, you know, of violence against them for for speaking their mind. It's just that you can't post someplace. This is the internet, people. Give me a break. But reporting a person to the authorities, so the authorities can handle it, that is more similar to actual censorship than what just moderation is, uh, enforcing of the rules. Okay, and Unlimited is sitting at 10%. They've had some variants here uh, going down to 9 up to about 11 or so. Uh, but it's just going to keep getting going down. No one cares about Unlimited. No one believes them. No one wants to implement their uh, buggy code ever, anywhere. Even the people that are reporting Unlimited aren't running Unlimited. They're running Core on the back end. So... <laughs> no one's running unlimited. No one cares. 10% of people are signaling unlimited, but they're not running the buggy code. So uh, no one cares. That, that'll keep going down. Okay, that's all I have for market update. That's kind of numbers. A few admin notes before we get started. I published a new blog post this week called Blockchain Rules of Thumb. It kind of gives you a framework to evaluate blockchain claims in the space. There's a lot of BS out there. Uh, Got some good reviews from on that and some feedback from the community, people that I really respect. So the link to that is in the show notes as well. The show notes, I put a ton of effort into those um, this week, probably a couple hours uh, putting in links. I have three videos and uh, multiple other charts and images and things. So go to the website, check that out. You can also donate there. So while you're listening to the podcast on the website, just go over the donate page and and you know, send me a few bits. Your support is uh, how I fund this show. I don't make much of anything. Uh, I do appreciate everything I do get, and it you know gives me motivation. It shows me that you guys like what I'm doing, and it gives me motivation to to do more and expand. I am going to be starting a YouTube channel. I've gotten some feedback that hey, let's do a YouTube channel, or you hey, you should do a YouTube channel. Um, and I'm going to make it like kind of a five minute morning update sort of thing. We'll see how that goes, but be on the lookout for that. Blah, enough of the admin. God damn, let's get into some content. I will see you live on the flip side. Bits and pieces. Here's a story from Reason Magazine. I have two stories today from Reason, actually. The first one is the secret dangerous world of Venezuelan Bitcoin mining. <laughs> Venezuelans are in a very bad situation. They've lost control of inflation and have entered hyperinflation. Uh, that's not new to my listeners, but what is new is that Bitcoin has been getting some press as a way to help these people. Reason came out with a story about citizens of Venezuela that they are mining Bitcoin with free electricity. This is an example of uh, Bitcoin as humanitarian aid. That's all I have for my notes. Um, I also think that this is <laughs> kind of like 
a killer for socialism, right? Um, as you create these free services, there's going to be people that take advantage of them. Am I wrong? I mean, there's free healthcare in some of these places. There's people that take advantage of it. There's free electricity in Venezuela, and there's people that are taking advantage of it. It's going to undermine the system. And so what do you have to do? You have to put more and more onerous regulations on people, more and more onerous laws, and it's going to crash the system. So I think it's pretty interesting that Bitcoin is uh, dominating the socialists here just dominating them uh i think that bitcoin i I was just talking to a buddy two days ago and i said that look bitcoin is uh, a bazooka okay it's in the hands of the free market bitcoin is a bazooka and it might not do everything you want it to do but guess what it's going to help the free market do what it wants to do and that's exactly what we're seeing here in venezuela that it's going to help the free market fight back against the socialists. But it'll do the same in Western countries that are fascist or even nationalistic. It's going to fight against these people. It is the free market bazooka. And so anyway, all right, next story. Uh, new developments in the Silk Road trial. So apparently uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts account on Silk Road was used after uh, Ross Ulbricht's arrest. That fact alone should acquit him. So that I, I hope this is huge. I hope he gets a new trial out of this. I know he's in the appeals process right now. If you guys would like to know more, if you guys would like to help out with this uh, free marketeer, this uh, entrepreneur, this person that saved lots of lives of selling drugs on the street, Selling drugs on online, right? Um, he saved lots of lives. He helped violence go down. He helped the uh, just the the welfare of humanity go up so much. How do they re- how do they thank him? They throw him in jail. So if you would like to support his efforts to get out of jail, please do so. Go to freeross.org. You can make a donation there. Okay, this one is from. Uh, it's it's a ransomware story. You guys have probably all heard of this. This is the passengers uh, got a free ride from the San Francisco Muni subway. Or it's the Bay Area, what is it? Bay Area Rapid Transit, BART. Bay Area Rapid Transit. So they got a free ride on there because all the computers to buy tickets and things were had ransomware on them. And yeah, this isn't like... I think this is a new breed of attack because this isn't like records, right? Like, uh, we, we saw that, uh, there was ransomware on a hospital and those are life and death, life or death records. Um, but this was, is not life or death. This is just a subway terminal. Nothing huge. There's no real data to back up, right? You just reboot and get the system back going again. Um, hopefully everything else is backed up offsite. If you keep metrics or whatever, yeah, you lose some metrics, but it's not life and death. It's not life and death for your business or whatever. But anyway, um, the hacker was requesting a hundred bitcoins, which was approximately seventy-three thousand dollars at the time. Officials scrambled 
letting everybody ride free, saying they never even considered paying the ransom. You can uh, see daily... Okay, then I looked up the daily ridership. So the daily ridership via Wikipedia, which I link in the show notes, is... uh, it's, you know, roughly, I, I'd have to go back and look at the page, but it's roughly 2,000, 200,000 on a Saturday and 100,000 on a Sunday, something around those, those numbers. And the average fare, I went onto their website, they have a fare calculator, and I just did the standard one that they, they, uh, put, right? Like, if you just hit submit, uh, right away, then you get this random fare of around $5. So, that's that's what I used, a $5 fare, and I calculated the lost revenue from these free fares. And the lost revenue was $1,795,505 that they lost due to these free fares over two days, over the weekend. <laughs> and, and the hackers were requesting 73000 and they lost 1.7 million. Oh my God. This is going to continue to happen. And as, as these cities see this, as these, uh, companies or cities, whoever's getting this ransomware put on their computers, as they start seeing this, they're going to be like, shit, this is going to cost me, let's say 5 million. And they're only asking for 50,000. I'm going to fucking pay it. Get my shit unlocked right away. I mean, the numbers don't look good for them. People are going to start paying this. Because the inconvenience of uh, being out of commission for two days is not good. No one wants that. Anyway, uh, Bitcoin adoption is not going to be a choice. I've said this for a long time. If you follow me on Twitter, I say this probably once a week at least. That Bitcoin adoption is not going to be a choice. You are going to have to adopt it. And so all of these people that go out there and want the merchants to accept Bitcoin... They want Amazon to accept Bitcoin. Uh, adoption is the only thing that matters. Well, guess what? People aren't going to have a choice. First, it's going to be these people getting ransomware. Then it's going to be, um, you know, millionaires and billionaires. Maybe the other way around. I don't know. But those people are going to adopt it first. It's going to trickle down. And everybody is going to have to adopt it. So... You're going to have to adopt Bitcoin. Next story I have here is a green wave. Legalized marijuana setting scores of defendants free. This is from California. They legalized cannabis last month during the elections. And um, they're setting people free from prison. California police made... 8,866 felony pot arrests in 2015. That's just in one year. And the minimum sentence for like one plant, growing one plant, was three years in prison. So over three years in prison, that's like 24,000 people in jail. In federal prison. It's a felony. And they were sending these people away. Now, even though that they've legalized recreational marijuana or recreational cannabis, sorry, and uh, medical cannabis, everything is legal there. There's probably some small laws on the books, but uh, roughly they're only letting 2,000 people out, even though there's tens of thousands of people in prison for this. 
They're only letting 2,000 people out because there's all these loopholes. But I want to say to police, like, okay, everything is basically legal except for, like, say, four things. I don't know what those four things are exactly. I haven't done a bunch of research on this. But are you going to arrest somebody for, oh, because they had two plants versus one? This is... I'm surprised that fucking cops can tie their shoes. I'm serious. Does your brain work? God. I'm talking directly to the police right now. Does your brain work? Don't follow evil orders. Don't be a pussy. Think for yourself. These people have a minor difference in what they did. You need to let them out of jail. You need to not arrest that person for Christ's sake. Get some balls and think for yourself. Okay, BitGo is back in the news. Uh, you know, they were um, involved with the Bitfinex hack. <laughs> and I want to say it like that because I think that they have a culpability in this. They don't, they did, weren't the hackers, obviously, and, and, um, Bitfinex has liability too here, but, or responsibility, <laughs> but BitGo can't go unblamed. My bottom line is that BitGo is selling regulatory compliance. They're selling regulatory pl- compliance to people that want to do business with Americans because, uh, they have multi-sig stuff. So they hold a key and you hold a key and the user holds a key. Then, you know, that is compliant with the law. So they're selling this multi-sig thing. Bitfinex did a shitty implementation. I agree with that. 100% agree. But Bitco should have never allowed that to happen. This is their business. If you go onto their website, their tagline is like, um, uh, the, the leader in uh, blockchain security or something like that. Security. This is ridiculous. Okay. Now BitGo is being tested with OKCoin. There's nothing on the OKCoin blog that I found, but BitGo is happy to tell everybody that they are working with OKCoin in some testing of their software. So what this tells me is that OKCoin is probably looking at opening up to Americans. And they're probably going to have different wallet solutions for the different sides. They already have like okcoin.com, right? And okcoin.cn. Is that correct? And, um, they're, they're probably going to open it up to Americans, but the Americans are going to have to deal with BitGo wallets. And everybody else in the fucking world is going to have to deal with their, uh, legacy security, which is working great. So anyway, BitGo is all happy about this. I, I'm not happy about it. Uh, Bitco, uh, OKCoin okay is way too important to Bitcoin to be chancing it with OK, uh, with uh, OK coin is way too big to be chancing with BitGo. And BitGo better have learned a lesson and look at the implementation that their customers are using. For Christ's sake, man. This, I got upset on the last story, but this story too. BitGo, give me a break. All right. Another development from BitGo is their documentation now is in Japanese. So like I've been saying on this show for a long time, Japan is a huge growth market for Bitcoin. It might be, 
you know, the dominant player over the next two years. They are primed for Bitcoin adoption. And this kind of shows maybe that Bitcoin's looking at enterprise stuff over in Japan. Just supports my previous points. Illinois is coming out with their own version of the bit license, it looks like. Last week they had a press release announcing a comment period ending January 18th, 2017, where they're going to take input on, um, you know, changing their laws, ma mainly their money transmitter laws and, uh, you know, giving some clarity on where digital currencies fit in. I do like the fact that they're saying digital currency. That's a change from virtual currency. The word virtual means, you know, that it doesn't exist basically. And, um, uh, digital means is a better definition. So that, that's one thing that I've noticed. Um, let me just read you a few quotes here from this press release. As innovative payment technologies grow in popularity, it is vital that we provide a succinct regulatory framework that gives business op businesses operating in this space necessary clarity. We plan to study digital currencies carefully as the technology develops. However, at this point in time, digital currencies like Bitcoin, given their low transaction volume and relative niche use, are best viewed as a speculative investment or possibly even a new type of asset class, not as money. Um, we don't need any more clarity. You just... You know, your regulations don't count for the use cases out there. Like, is a, a darknet market going to care at all what you say? Illinois? State of Illinois? No, hell no. So, um, nobody really cares about this clarity. The only people that care about this clarity are, you know, like VC-backed companies, um, companies that are trying to be up and up, and, and all that stuff. Which... Bitcoin doesn't fit anyway, right? All those business models have failed to be successful. So you're going to regulate people that aren't even there in the first place. Okay, reading on. Um, the Illinois Department of Financial something or other proposed guidance seeks to establish the regulatory treatment of decentralized digital currencies under existing definitions of money transmission in Illinois as defined by the Illinois uh, Transmitters of Money Act. Digital currencies currently do not fit the statutory definitions of money and therefore do not independently trigger the licensing requirement. However, some businesses, business activities involving decentralized digital currency that involve the receipt of money can trigger the licensing requirement. So they're looking, um, the proposed guidance considers several types of digital currency activities and offers guidance on their licensing implications. So this is a licensing play. They're saying right now, as long as you don't touch dollars, then you are not touching money. So you do not fall under the Money Transmitter Act. Uh, okay, great. So they're gonna they're gonna try to expand it, whatever. But yeah, comments are here. The link is in the show notes if you guys want to send in your comments. Please do. There's this that one professor from fucking Argentina or Brazil or something that sends in to all these things. That sent in multiple letters to New York and and stuff, just dissing on Bitcoin. If that's the only thing that they hear, that's not good. So uh, if you guys want to put together a quick couple paragraphs, send it in. Please do. Okay, 
Japanese insurer to offer coverage for Bitcoin exchanges. This is via Nikkei.com. Obviously, link is in the show notes. Um, Mitsui Samitomo Insurance, whatever, will launch an insurance product specifically designed to cover losses and damages at Bitcoin exchanges. Product developed with Japanese Bitcoin exchange operator Bitflyer will protect both exchanges and their customers. The total coverage ranging from 10 million yen or 86,000 to 1 billion yen uh, will be offered against damages and losses caused by cyber attacks and other unauthorized accesses uh, as well as mistakes and impropriety by employees. This is gigantic. Um, so this is, this is the second time on this episode I said it, but Japan is huge for Bitcoin. Um, they're very, very friendly. Like the regulations, it's, it's considered money, you know, and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, they're, they're very friendly to it. I think it's going to be coming bigger and bigger deal, but, uh, they are they are leading the way on this insurance for these exchanges. It's a big deal. Okay, I'm going to wrap up bits and pieces with just um, a couple comments about the Bitcoin Unlimited stuff because I don't have any one specific story. There's been multiple place multiple things out there. I'm going to put a bunch of links in the show notes uh, that. Like there was a couple videos on YouTube that were that are worth watching. Um, one of them was from the Whale Club or Whale Pool, whatever. And they they had a couple major Bitcoin Core supporters on there with Olivier Johansson, I think is his name. It was just a, it's a long back and forth, but it's entertaining, and you can see that the the in that interview. Bitcoin Unlimited people have no idea what they're talking about. It's becoming more and more clear that they have no idea what they're talking about. And now this censorship stuff is starting to get busted up big time because uh, RBTC banned Greg Maxwell just this morning. There, I think it lasted only a couple minutes, but still they're doing it. They removed a couple of his posts. They, they did some major censorship, quote unquote censorship. What they think is censorship. They're doing it to him. And it's going to blow up in their face. Talk about your all-time backfires. Uh, what else? Segwit continues to go up. Uh, there, There is... A st- uh, it looks like the adoption rate is going to slow here over the next week. But I'm just waiting for the price to go up and for... You know, more miners to get on board saying, you know, they're, they're getting in the mood. They're getting in the Bitcoin mood and excited about the future. I think that's coming as the next week and Bitcoin Unlimited dies down. Then uh, a, a lot of people are going to start jumping onto the say the Segwit bandwagon. Let me, I haven't looked in a couple days. Uh, let me go look at where Bitcoin Unlimited is. I know I talk about it at the beginning of this, beginning of the podcast, but I haven't looked at it. So, all right, Unlimited is sitting at 9.2%. I saw it as low as 8% in the last few days here. Dropped below, yeah, two days ago, dropped below 8%. Um, Now it's going back up. 
but it's going to keep trending down, you know, and, and as we get further through this week and further in through December, where SegWit's been out for a month, then we're going to see Bitcoin Limited die down considerably while other miners are getting excited about a SegWit future. They're getting excited about being miners on Bitcoin. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. Less than six months, it'll be adopted. Uh, so everybody, I think, is going to start getting excited as the numbers tick up. It's going to be a self-reinforcing thing. Altcoin Bill. I wasn't exactly sure where to include this story. I want to talk about M-Pesa. They're competitor kind of payment platform type thing. So I, uh, I think Altcoinville, it fits here pretty good. Uh, I recently, uh, I follow a guy, Pesa underscore Africa on Twitter. And um, he had tweeted out something like, oh, M-Pesa is down again. You know, they're having uh, techni- uh, service interruptions again. And so I was like, hey, what's um, what's the deal here? I don't know much about M-Pesa. Can you link me to some background information? And another account, uh, Kenya Coin, they sent me a bunch of links. And so uh, this, I started reading up, and this is kind of what I learned about it. Um, okay, so M-Pesa has uh, seen pretty rapid growth expanding into a dozen or so countries, including the Holy Grail India. But the India penetration is very, very limited. They they have said they have plans in the near future to expand their offerings in India. But I think this type of payment thing is facing the same challenges that other payment providers are facing. I mean, as we've seen in the last month, you know, India is a cash-based society. Maybe as they go more uh, cashless um, and more banked, Maybe we'll see M-Pesa grow there, but um, if M-Pesa doesn't have a foothold, you know, they're going to have to be competing uh, with the likes of Bitcoin and other things. So anyway, that's just an interesting little tidbit. Okay, their growth uh, is hampered by having to comply with a maze of banking regulations in each country and internationally. For example, they use Western Union and MoneyGram for their cross-border payments. Um I, before starting researching this, I thought they were some like unstoppable force that is banking the unbanked. Um, because I have heard, you know, good things about them. They have 11 million users, I think, in Kenya and, um, some other Eastern African countries. Um, but I found that they've failed to get a sizable foothold in a lot of these countries. Like, uh, they, they tried to break into South Africa, but, uh, they've had very limited uh, success there. Uh, also, Afghanistan, very limited usage of it. India, very limited. And uh, Eastern Europe, although Eastern Europe are p- pretty new, uh, their newest countries to go into, um, they, you know, a lot of times they'll predict, oh, we're going to have 5 million users within the first three years or something like that. That's what they said in South Africa. And it never, never came to fruition. So um, Eastern Europe hasn't, hasn't seen a lot of growth either. Um, okay, so they need a very sizable unbanked population, so they're not going to be going into, say, the United States or or um, into some, you know, um, some of these more uh, first world type countries 
where people have bank accounts because it is just another bank account. Um, it's not like Bitcoin where it's a whole nother payment system. Um, okay, so um, they need friendly regulations. Uh, you know, they move into a country, they're competing against other banks and other companies trying to do very similar things that might have better connections inside of that country. So what about their outages? Um, they, through their financial set, uh, or though their financial setup was audited in Kenya several years ago and the financials, you know, were found to be quote robust. Their actual IT stuff though seems to be not the case. Um, they were hosting in Europe in some some data center or something in uh, Germany, there was a power outage and they their servers were damaged in 2012. So um, over the next couple years, Safaricom, that's the parent company, they, they started bringing their hosting back to Kenya. You know, that's their major power base um, where they have most of their users, probably, ah, God, 70, 50 to 75% of their users are in Kenya. Um, and so they started bringing the hosting back to Kenya. But they're still, today, they're racked by constant outages, uh, both network-wide, some of them lasting up to two days, um, and for individuals. I put a link in the show notes for uh, this uh, uh, Twitter search of all these people contacting customer service. That, that's pretty pretty interesting. Okay, so what's my overall impression of M-Pesa? Well, uh, um before I started researching this, I thought they were pretty good. You know, I thought they had a stranglehold on this banking to unbank type stuff. But um, now I think they're less awesome than before. Yes, it's positioned as an incumbent that directly competes with Bitcoin's value proposition. So um, if Bitcoin's trying to break into Kenya, well, they're going to have to be competing with M-Pesa. If they're going to try to break into Eastern Africa, they're going to have to um, compete with M-Pesa. So uh, it is it is positioned as an incumbent um, and it has a pretty uh, it has quite large success in like Kenya and, and a couple other countries in providing payments where none existed before, but it has major, major weaknesses. First, they're heavily regulated and they rely on banks in the countries um, that they move into. The fees are outrageous. I couldn't believe how high the fees were. If you're sending to uh, an unregistered user um, for the smallest transactions, $1 to $5 transactions, 60%. So on a dollar transaction, you're spending $0.60 cents to send $1 to an unregistered user. And even to a registered user, it's 27% on $1 transaction. So if you're trying to buy lunch or coffee in Kenya and it's a dollar or maybe two bucks, the fees are ex exorbitant. Um, okay. So there's, there's no insulation either from corrupt governments. In fact, I think M-Pesa actually exposes its users to more systemic and trusted third-party risk than using cash, you know, the system that it's replacing. Um, I think people that are exposed to M-Pesa right now will eat up Bitcoin once, you know, Bitcoin starts moving in. Um, 
slowly but surely Bitcoin is going to move in. And it's not like and Bitcoin is not like M-Pesa where it has a marketing arm. It has these people that are out there trying to get profit and stuff. Bitcoin is a protocol. So it's going to creep in just like uh, countries weren't on the Internet overnight. It took decades to get these countries onto the Internet and uh, it's going to take a decade probably to get them on to Bitcoin or at least expose them to Bitcoin. But M-Pesa users are a step ahead because they do use things like SMS and apps, money apps. Um, and again, there's these technical uh, disruptions that I think probably will continue, especially as they get even bigger. Um, okay, and the last thing here I have is over the last one to two years, so since 2014 roughly, their expansion has halted or at least slowed drastically. Um, the last countries they moved into, I think, were like Albania and some Eastern European countries. And since then, they really haven't done much. Um, I would be banking on India because that's a huge growth market. We'll see how they fare there. But um, yeah, that's what I have for M-Pesa. I hope this was informational. And um, if it... Whatever, if you have more information, leave it in the comments and stuff like that. Let's move on to some Ethereum stuff. Okay, um, if you've listened to the show before, you know that I am very, very bearish Ethereum um, for multiple reasons. I mean, not only uh, the social aspect of Ethereum is broken... But the technical aspect is also broken. And I've argued with multiple people online and in person at my own meetup about Ethereum and how I just can't see the light because it's so, it's such, so technological, technologically advanced and yada, yada, yada. But there's nothing there. People don't use it. It's used for nothing. You know the first thing to give Bitcoin value was when it was used for the first time. To buy the pizzas on the Bitcoin talk. That, the forum. It, the very first thing that gave Bitcoin value was a use. Nothing, it's not used for anything. Uh, Ethereum isn't. Um, back when it was in the, the mid-teens, um, even for the first time, I remember when it was passing like $10 for the first time, I was saying to my meetup, don't invest in this. This is a scam. And I got shit for, for it. Um, anyway, so uh, I've been saying since the mid-teens that this thing is going to roughly zero. Uh, eventually, it's it's just another shit coin, just like every other shit coin out there. Um, I listened to a recent interview with uh Krista Rose from Bitcoin Uncensored and I I he, he had a great point that the development kind of philosophy of Ethereum is the same as it is in kind of out there in business today and that is you know uh, iterate get it out there and iterate um but in a consensus driven network you can't do that it doesn't fit with actually having a functional decentralized network that relies on consensus. 
It cannot work. Forks are anathema. You need to stop with the hard forks. The closer to zero hard forks you can do, the better. And to quote one of the Ethereum devs from a year ago now, um, I don't remember who it was or what conference it was. I'll try to find it. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, um, please link to me on Twitter or uh, in the show notes, uh, comment section, whatever, uh, to this. But there was a Ethereum dev that was like, first we're going to do this fork, then we're going to do this fork, then this fork. And by the time we get to this fork, we're going to have, quote, infinite millions of transactions per second. <laughs> infinite millions of transactions per second. And we're going to keep forking this network until we get the network we deserve. Quote, the network we deserve. So they have no idea what a decentralized consensus is about. They don't know what they're building. It's going to hell. So uh, um, another quote I want to point out here by Satoshi, which is pretty good. Um, first off, I link a couple things in the show notes to what I'm talking here about Ethereum. Um, one of them is a Coinbase article, another is a Reddit thread. Um, but anyway, Satoshi Nakamoto, this is what he said on Bitcoin Talk way back, I think it was um, late 2009, but I, it could be 2010. I don't believe a second compatible implementation of Bitcoin will ever be a good idea. So much of the design depends on all nodes getting exactly identical results in lockstep that a second implementation would be a menace to the network. I mean, he saw that right away. He knew what a decentralized consensus was all about. And Ethereum comes out and has, what, six freaking implementations or some bullshit? Four? And, okay, that, that goes into this next part. Um, they had their most recent hard fork, number four. And I said that they're going to lose about a dollar every hard fork, but it looks like this one could be the last one. We'll see. Um, uh, it was scheduled for block... Uh, 2,675,000. But before that, just, uh, about, what is that? 30 blocks before that on, or 30,000 blocks before that, uh, 2,642,000, they had a f unintentional fork. Uh, the two clients, Parity and Geth, forked each other. They had two networks running. And, um, they, they, luckily, they, they said this in this Coinbase article, that luckily someone just happened to notice it about six minutes in to this fork. <laughs> just by dumb luck. It could have run for hours. And they, you know, someone might not have checked it. Uh, because guess what? No one's fucking using it. So they don't know. The, the devs had to check this. They, oh, dumb luck they got, they, they spotted it. But there's no users. Because, so they didn't spot it. It had to be the devs. Anyway, um, and, uh, in this article, it's just a shit show. They're, they don't know what they're doing. Um, they happen to catch this fork. Then they, guess they say they fixed it, but you know what? You're going to have to continue to fork this because now you've just made this thing so freaking complicated that you're going to have to fork this to death. Really? Okay, let me just read um, 
this little section of the Coinbase article. There have been three other forks recently. The last technical fork, Spurious Dragon, fixed a few different Ethereum issues, including the deletion of the empty accounts that the attackers used to spam the blockchain. Over the past week, developers have been using this newly granted power to delete all of these empty accounts, thus de-bloating the blockchain, a process that was officially completed on Wednesday. In the middle of this process, at block 2,686,000, blah, blah, uh, a developer tried to delete an empty account but didn't use enough gas. That's where Geth and Parity had a minor disagreement with big consequences. Geth went forward with deleting the accounts, whereas Parity didn't, so the network temporary, temporarily split into two. The latest version of Geth released the day of the fork fixed the problem. If you do not update, please quote, if you do not update, please be aware you will be on an invalid chain that is not supported, said Vitalik Buterin. So this is nutso, man. It's nuts. <laughs> They're going through and micromanaging this blockchain. And people think that it has hundreds of millions of dollars worth of value? This is a freaking test net. Get out. All right, last little bit here I want to talk about is um, what I see altcoins in general. I'm going to include some charts in the show notes to so check those out. Also, I put a bunch of stuff into that M-Pesa little bit that I just did. So, um, you know, there's there's extensive show notes for that. Okay, so let's take a look at these altcoins. Um, I think... For the most part, the altcoin market is going to die slowly here, or at least get massively, um, it will massively shrink compared to Bitcoin over the next six months. Uh, the, the two altcoins, or three maybe, that I see kind of living a little bit, um, will be XMR, which is Monero, and, um, Litecoin. So those two are going to be kind of holding value at least. Um, of course, you'll be much better off holding Bitcoin. My recommendation, I guess, of what I am going to do uh, is you want to hold 100% Bitcoin and only use these other coins if you have a use for them because you can't time the market. If you get in, luckily, oh, I got in and I made... Uh, a thousand bucks off this coin but good luck getting out that's the thing if you're not running the pump you're screwed you won't be able to get out and that that thousand dollar gain that felt so good for that day that you had it is gone because you can't sell so anyway um that's my recommendation for things but monero is interesting they they have an interesting chart if you want to check that out um, in the show notes, uh, since no the beginning of November, they've had a pretty good run here. And again, I think that they could benefit from some of the money coming out of other alts and going into Monero. Uh, I think I, I am neutral, at least for the near term. Um, I, I've said six to six months to a year. I'm still neutral. Um, there is a, an equal amount of chance that it will go up or down. Um, but 
I think that it has some uh, little bit of legs to it. Okay, the other one is Litecoin. They had a real, oh man, they had a crash last night. It was pretty bad. If you check out the chart, it just tanked last night. Um, some exchanges were worse than others, but uh, it would be hard to hold last night. I bet there were lots of stops triggered, but anyway. It dropped from about 385 all the way down to 330 in one bar. And now it's back up to around 350. I, I think this wouldn't be bad to buy this, buy this dip on Litecoin. It is the second most stable, I think, in the crypto space. It's a distant second to Bitcoin, but it is second place. There is a lot of long-time holders. Uh, people don't really use Litecoin, but there's a lot of long-time holders. It has a decent amount of um, hash power, and people have been mining it for a long time. Um, so I, I do think there is some stability there, and this might be a good time to buy the dip on Litecoin. I don't think it's going to suffer the same fate, say, as Ethereum. Um, we could see Litecoin go on for another year or two at roughly these levels, you know, between, I would say, $3 and $5. Um, but yeah, it's, it's generally a, a safe bet, much safer than buying Ethereum at this point. So, okay, and the last one I wanted to touch on was Counterparty. I, um, if you guys know where I can get a chart of Counterparty, that'd be great. I'm looking for a chart that I could embed. If you guys know where I can get an embedded chart of uh, XCP, that'd be great. But XCP is just a long play on Bitcoin. Um, they can be used on, on the Lightning Network, so there's going to be some sort, some interesting applications there. Um, and it, um, it's just generally a, a long play on Bitcoin. They also have implementation of kind of smart contracts on a layer, so um, I think that that could have legs in the future as well since it's not uh, a on bitcoin it's on layer two that that's that's a little bit more legitimate i wanted to add here at the end here of altcoinville about remember that started early november the crack in challenge for I, I think it was like college students or something to pick a allocation between bitcoin and ethereum to see who could have the best perf uh, performing portfolio over a certain period of time and at the time i tweeted out this is freaking easy 100 percent bitcoin 100 percent. so if you are thinking of allocating your funds between bitcoin and um, monero and litecoin and stuff don't do it Bitcoin is the thing that's going to have the best returns over the long term. If you see a short-term trade, I'm not a huge technical analyst. You can see from my charts in the show notes. I'm not like super great at that technical analysis stuff. So if you do see some sort of short-term opportunity, by all means, go for it. But over the long run, that's not a winning strategy. Featured article. 
I just got done watching the new Andreas video where he was talking at a coin scrum in England. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. He started by saying, hey, I was talking about Bitcoin being used for uh, remittances and banking the unbanked, but I was wrong. I was wrong. Uh, what it's going to be used for is warfare, currency war. And that's, <laughs> I was like, man, has he been listening to my podcast? Because uh, he talks about Bitcoin being an exit to the system. And if you go back and listen to episode 22, way back at the back, uh, around minute 45 or so, you'll hear me talking about Bitcoin is that exit door. And that's even the title of the episode. Bitcoin is that exit door. And then episode, one of the next couple episodes after that, I uh, the title is Wimps and War. We are at war, people. And I so appreciate Andreas taking this uh, much more bold stance. The rhetoric is being turned up by Andreas, and I love it. I think that's what we need. We don't need any more podcasts or media out there being all timid, talking about blockchain this and blockchain that. I think this is an important point to bring up, that the Bitcoin media, you know, the podcast, the Let's Talk Bitcoin folks, all of their shows, um, it's, Andreas in the past, um, a lot of these uh, news outlets that try to talk about, uh, you know, paint this rosy picture of the future. Um, it's a lot of pacifists. And I'm not saying I want, I'm not saying that I don't believe in that. I mean, I, I'm a nap person. Okay. Non-aggression principle, but I'm not a pacifist. And a lot of the media, you know, um, it just goes hand in hand when you talk about, um, you know, being an activist and being a libertarian and, and somebody that believes in the nap or an anarchist that believes in nap. They're going to be activists and they're going to speak out and say, oh, we, we can talk this out. Let's talk about it. Let's use words to do our fighting. OK, but the words they choose are very weak. Very timid. Everybody belongs. Everybody has a place. Everybody's idea has worth. And we need to talk this out and convince people. Hell no. You've won all the people. You've done as much growing as you can with this ultra pacifist message. Where you try to convince people peacefully with peaceful rhetoric. The time is now for aggressive rhetoric. People follow strong leaders. They follow strong rhetoric. I was just watching the Mad Bitcoins. The, the, he did a recent video about, you know, he adapted a Winston Churchill speech to Bitcoin. Can you imagine like Winston Churchill using this passive language? Hell no. People don't, wouldn't follow that. People follow strong rhetoric. And maybe in the past, people didn't want to do that. Maybe they didn't think that they could speak up because, and be very aggressive with the rhetoric because they, their bank accounts would be frozen. You know, they would, uh, lose their job. They would get locked out from the system. But now we have all of these tools, the D, the internet. We can publish our own stuff and we have a backstop of Bitcoin. We don't need to be afraid of them anymore. 
And so aggressive and strong leadership and rhetoric is what we need. And Andreas is flipping it right here from uh, more pacifist. Oh, we're going to do this nice remittances to help the unbanked and the unbanked people need Bitcoin. And that's great. I mean, that is a clear and useful message, but it's not going to convince the masses. It's not going to bring us to the point we need to get to. We need to have strong leaders. And Andreas, I'm so happy that he is doing this, uh, you know, strong rhetoric here. So anyway, the, the video is in the show notes. Please watch it. It's great. There's some question and answers at the end. Um, like half of it is his talk and then half of it is question and answers. So I, I really liked that. Um, hopefully this starts sparking some of the same um, rhetoric around the community. Um, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was there was a void of this strong speech telling it how it is uh, speaking directly to the power. And so um, hopefully this spreads. Hopefully this idea catches on. Flashpoint. Today's Flashpoint is going to be about the Italian referendum that we just had, or we, the Italians just had on last this last Sunday, December 4th. Um, it was a vote against re or, or constitutional reforms. So Renzi came in power and, and he was having, and all prime ministers in Italy have had over the last couple decades, a really hard time changing laws, uh, um, being proactive on their legislation and things, which I, for one, think is a good thing, right? You don't want to have a mutable constitutional blockchain. You want to have an immutable constitutional blockchain. So anyway, he came in and, and he was like, okay, we're going to push through these reforms. We're going to basically neuter the Senate. They, they have no say. We're going to give me some more power and we're going to give the um, representative house, whatever they call it over there. We're going to give them some more power and we're going to make these big changes. Um, we need to save the banks. We need to uh, recapitalize them. We need to change all these rules. Uh, let's do this. Basically, they're centralizing power um, and the people over there voted against it. That was what we kind of expected. It wasn't a surprise like Brexit or Trump. A lot of people are uh, comparing all of these three things. And I think they are somewhat uh, similar, but we, most people expected this to turn out no, as it did. But the 60 to 40 split was pretty surprising. Um, you know, people were expecting like 54, 53 percent to vote no but 60 percent of people voted no and that's that's a pretty big deal so anyway what happens now well the banks they're kind of they had a plan to get some you know debt to equity thing worked out get some private people to come in and uh like cutter was one of the big people they were courting to come in and buy up to five billion euros worth of uh, equity or new equity to recapitalize the bank but that's all falling through now. So Monte de Pashi out of Siena, they are probably going to go belly up. There's also like Unicredit or something out of Milan that's in, in pretty big trouble. Uh, most of the top banks in Italy are in big trouble. Um, 
so what is what does this mean? Um, they're probably going to have to do a bailout, even though I that is against the ECB rules. You must do a bail-in. Um, so anyway, they're, they're going to want to do a bailout. They're talking about it already that they're going to do a bailout. This also comes right uh, before the ECB's meeting that happens this week. That's going to be talking about their quantitative easing program. Should they stop it in March of next year like they plan to, which means they're going to start tapering? Or are they going to extend it another six months? This has wide-ranging effects because the euro is tanking versus the dollar. Got down to 105. And if they continue their quantitative easing, it's going to push that euro even lower, which I guess they want, right? Because they, they have some perverted idea that a weaker currency is good. They want to steal from their people via inflation. And when you have inflation, you push people into Bitcoin. Because it's, it has, uh, the value is rising. Um, anyway, so this has wide ranging effects and we, uh, could see some major fallout during this, uh, ECB meeting. Uh, like I said, they were going to taper, but now they probably won't. They'll probably keep printing. And as the dollar goes up, that push puts pressure on the Fed to do. They have their meeting next week. So all of this stuff rolls right on through. A hundred percent of traders think that the Fed is going to raise rates. There's been multiple polls out there that show it at a hundred or very near a hundred percent of people think the the Fed is going to raise rates here in December. I'm watch this over the next week. I bet it starts diving. Um, if the dollar takes off, if the euro starts uh, falling, the dollar takes off north, interest rates start going up in the U.S. Um, stock markets might start going down. I don't know. Uh, and we'll see if that affects people's evaluation of whether if the Fed is going to raise rates. Um, if they do, it's going to be a mistake. First off, they can't normalize rates. You know, rates are normally, uh, I think like the historic average is 5 to 7% or something like that. They cannot normalize rates. They are at 0.25. Uh, so this is, if they raise it to 0.5, or some, there have been some people out there talking about raising it whole. Uh, 50 basis points. So to 0.75, they're going to have to reverse course very quickly. We are in the time in the cycle that you should be easing. You should be, um, you know, being more accommodative. Uh, so I think if they do raise rates, they're just going to have to, uh, turn around there might be some middle ground in there maybe they target instead of 0.5 they target 0.3 and they come up with some fucked up stupid plan um, or maybe they talk about a future rate hike so we're not going to raise it now but it's going to be raised in february or march so that gives people a little bit more time i mean they can come up with all sorts of tricks but you cannot believe them Look at the history of these central banks. 
They, it sucks. They can never predict what they're going to do. Ever. They can never predict what the market is going to do. And remember, these guys are all lagging indicators. They are um, admittedly data-driven. So if you look at data, you should be able to see whether they're going to raise rates. They are, um, it's a trailing indicator. And all the things I see about manufacturing and production and exports in the U.S. are negative, big-time negative. And you think Donald Trump wants the dollar to go up? I don't think so. My my longer-term projection into next year is the U.S. will be negative, the ECB will be negative, and with both with quantitative easing. Uh, the Italian banks are going to go under, and they're probably going to have another vote here uh, to break away from the euro. Because the Italians, to it would be much easier to do these bailouts and to do uh, to uh, recapitalize their banks if they had their own currency. So I can see that happening. But anyway, that's it. This is a kind of a short uh, feature article and, and short flashpoint. There's a lot of stuff going on, uh, so be watching out. Uh, mainly, it's all centered around Europe right now. There, it's kind of quiet over there from China uh, and Japan. We'll see if those guys pick up over the next week. Stay tuned. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. I have a closing remark here. This is from Peter Willa on GitHub back in July of 2015. Um, it kind of sums up still what's going on in, in Bitcoin, and so I wanted to read it. The effective space available is always constrained by a hash rate majority and its ability to process transactions. No hard forking change that relaxes the block size limit can be guaranteed to provide enough space for every possible demand, or even any particular demand, unless strong centralization of the mining ecosystem is expected. Because of that, the development of a fee market and the evolution towards an ecosystem that is able to cope with block space competition should be considered healthy. This does not mean the block size or its limitation needs to be a constant forever. However, the purpose of such a change should be evolution with technological growth and not kicking the can down the road because of a fear of change in economics. Bitcoin's advantage over other systems does not lie in scalability. Well-designed centralized systems can trivial, trivially compete with Bitcoin's on-chain transactions in terms of cost, speed, reliability, convenience, and scale. Its power lies in transparency, lack of need for trust in network peers, miners, and those who influence or control the system. Wanting to increase the scale of the system is in conflict with all of those. Attempting to buy time with a fast increase is not wanting to face that reality, and treating the system as something whose scale trumps all other concerns. A long-term scalability plan should aim at decreasing the need for trust required in off-chain systems, rather than increasing the need for trust in Bitcoin. So again, that's from Peter Willa. Um, over a year ago, you know, as this XT stuff started kicking off, and um, 
it's still just as valid today. No one has answered a question that he has asked. Um, and it's very similar to what I wrote in my new blog post, uh, Blockchain Rules of Thumb. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening. We'll see you next time.